Welcome to the 24-hour conference on global organised crime podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. The 24-hour conference on global organised crime took place online in November 2020 and was organised by the European Consortium of Political Research Standing Group, the Centre for Information and Research on Organised Crime, the International Association for the Study of Organised Crime and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Hundreds of academics, researchers, journalists and others from around the world gathered together to present and discuss the latest research in organised crime. We've selected just 14 of them for this podcast series. But I would encourage you to head over to the website oc24.globalinitiative.net where you can find recordings of other sessions. In this episode, you'll hear the session Prioritising Serious and Organised Environmental Crime. Welcome, everybody. Um, My name is Louise Taylor. On behalf of um, the Global Initiative, I would like to welcome you to actually one of these uh, inaugural sessions of this amazing 24-hour event. Um, So welcome. It's uh, fantastic to have you all here. Um, And I'm very excited to specifically welcome you to one of, I said, the the first sessions of the next 24 hours on prioritising serious and organised environmental crime, where our host of amazing speakers that we have lined up for you will discuss the different priorities attached to environmental crime around the globe and in different fora. Um, I will be your moderator for today's event. Um, I'm going to run through uh, how we're going to to run the next sort of 75 uh, minutes. Um, Our panel today comes from a variety of different backgrounds, Um, some former law enforcement practitioners, some from the academic field and others from international organisations, both civil society and multilateral. Um, I'll tell you a bit more about them as we go through the session. Um, We have an hour and 15 minutes today. I'll run through the agenda now, but just to flag that there'll be plenty of time for all of you to ask questions and to, you know, and to challenge constructively, of course, uh, our panel and our speakers. We are relying on you to engage um, and to uh, and to debate and to discuss these issues today, please. So please do come prepared um, to uh, to engage, to be engaged, and I will do my best to facilitate that engagement as well. So each speaker today will speak for approximately five minutes. We'll first hear from Justin and Julian, whom I will introduce shortly, and then I will open up the floor for a short Q&A based around those initial uh, discussions there. We will then ask our other three speakers to outline their reactions and insights. And again, I will introduce each speaker as we go through. Um, And once they have all finished uh, presenting their thoughts, we will again open up to a longer Q&A session that will run until the end of the allotted time which is 3.15 Central European, 9.15 in New York, or, oh, the terribly squeamish, um, 0.115 if you are um, out uh, in Australia and further beyond. Um, A final little bit on practicalities before we begin. Um, If we can cast our minds back to when we were able to go on airplanes, this is like my Zoom version of the introductory safety session that we all used to happily ignore, but would probably now welcome back uh, with open arms. Um, We will keep everybody on mute unless you are the nominated speaker or have been nominated to ask a question. Please don't be offended uh, by that. We're just trying to minimize background noise and let everybody have their moment. Um, Questions can be asked in two ways. 
So either through the chat function or through the raise hand function. If you put a question in the chat, I will read it out on your behalf. Please do state your affiliation and to whom, if appropriate, you'd like the question to be asked to. If you raise your hands, I will pass the floor to you to ask the question yourself. And again, please do state your affiliation and to whom you'd like to direct the question. Um, I'll try to take a group of three or four questions at a time as we get to that point, but let's see how that works. So um, life jackets under your seats, don't wear high heels if we have to exit the conference through an inflatable slide. Um, I'm very excited at this point to introduce to you Justin, who will be our first speaker. Justin Gosling is the founder and director of Wild Crime, an organization that supports national agencies to tackle wildlife crime. Justin himself is a law enforcement specialist with years of experience in UK law enforcement, as well as Interpol, supporting law enforcement agencies across Africa, Asia, Australia, and Europe. Um, he's a member of the Global Initiatives Expert Network um, of the UK DEFRA's Illegal Wildlife Trade Challenge Fund Advisory Group, and also a dear friend. Um, thank you, Justin, for your continued support. The floor is yours. Thanks, Louise, and uh, thanks to the Global Initiative for organizing this incredible and ambitious uh, 24 hour crime festival. Um, it's uh, very exciting to be part of it and to, uh, to, to be part of the first session as well. Um, I hope we set a, a good tone for the, for the next 24 and a bit hours. Um, and also thanks to you, all of you <clears throat> for tuning in from wherever and where and uh, whenever you are in the world. Um, of course, this probably isn't the first online event you've been part of this year uh, as we adapt to life in, in this time of this uh, devastating pandemic. Um, I've listened to quite a few events, uh, mainly around the issues I work on, which is wildlife crime. Uh, but I've also um, uh, uh, listened to, to uh, discussions on other forms of organized crime and environmental crime. And I've enjoyed the content, I found it useful, but I've also been troubled by some of what's been said. Um, I've heard speakers drawing upon um, the tired old cliches and messaging around environmental crime, quoting figures, some of which are a decade old, that focus on the economic value of these crimes and saying how we have to tackle them more seriously. We hear that when it comes to environmental crimes, legislation's weak, penalties are low, Enforcement agencies lack the skills and the resources to go beyond seizing contraband and to address what's widely regarded as a crime type, which is invariably serious, transnational and organised. We've heard the same old rhetoric in international meetings as well. It's like Groundhog Day, the same promises and pledges, but with little change to the actual response. And like me, you might be asking yourself the question that I seem to ask so often these days about so many things, and that's why. Why is it that environmental crimes are treated as a lower priority than other forms of serious organized crime? Why, despite the extraordinary threat that these crimes pose to all of us, are responses not more urgent and more robust? So I'd like to take these few minutes to make the argument, make a case for serious and organized environmental crimes to be treated as the global law enforcement and criminal justice priority. But what do we mean when we talk about environmental crime, first of all? Well, these are acts in contravention of national legislation. They adversely affect the environment, i.e. the place that we live, the water we drink, uh, the earth, 
the sea from where we source our food and other natural resources, the air that we breathe to survive, crimes like trafficking in plants and animals that threaten biodiversity and also allow diseases to emerge, crimes like deforestation for timber trafficking and illegal land clearance, pollution crimes like illicit trade in electronic and plastic waste, trade in ozone-depleting substances. Collectively, these crimes pose greater threats to life on Earth than any other organized crime types because they adversely affect our life support systems. So what are the current responses to environmental crime? Well, the first problem is how the threat's measured, invariably measured in financial terms, mostly on the potential profits and worth for criminals involved, just brushing over the wider threats than comprehensively addressing them. As a result, the threats can't be effectively understood and consequently, the policies, strategies and tactics can't be determined. When it comes to organized profit-driven crimes, no law enforcement agency or ministry prioritizes environmental crime, focusing instead on firearms trafficking, trafficking in persons and of course drug trafficking. No intergovernmental organization prioritizes environmental crime. But not only are these crimes not prioritized, they're not even treated as seriously as other crime types. In many jurisdictions, environmental crime isn't even treated as a police matter. Cases detected are frankly dumped and cuffed onto other agencies responsible for agriculture and other animal or land issues. Where resources are absent, inadequate training leads to low levels of investigation and skill. And I've seen that this leads to poor follow-up investigations, evidence gaps, mistakes, misconnections to other crimes, and acquittals in court. Those of us trying to raise the profile of these crimes have an urge to link environmental crimes to others in order to boost them, trying to get a bunk up from other crime types, rather than recognizing environmental crime in their own right as a far greater threat than others. It's time for environmental crimes to stand on their own, to finally be recognized as a serious crime type, to be addressed as a priority and expect to be treated as such, not as an afterthought. And it's time to challenge those who belittle environmental crime and pay lip service to it. Priorities are clear. They stand out as actions we don't have a choice about but must be done. As a crime type, uniquely, environmental crime is not something we have a choice about tackling, whether that fact is realized or not. Priorities should be based on the potential impact or harm of criminality upon people, species, and the environment. Priorities and prioritization would mean the allocate, allocation of commensurate levels of human resources. That would mean appropriate agencies, i.e. the police, were tasked with having primary responsibility for these crimes. Prioritization would ensure national and local level responses not just rhetoric at individual levels. Lastly, what's different about environmental crimes compared to other forms of serious organized crime? Well, firstly, the threats and challenges of those other organized crime types are shared by environmental crime. The extraordinary profits uh, uh, potential for uh, perpetrators, the security threat that that money and power provides to them, the illicit concealed financial flows, the convergence with other crime types, the corruption within governments and law enforcement agencies, the violence, intimidation, murder, they all exist within environmental crime. But environmental crime has some unique qualities. Firstly, it's a global, wide-ranging threat to all of us. 
I'm unlikely to be trafficked into forced labour or directly affected by drug trafficking or the arms trade. And I know how fortunate I am in that respect. And my family and future generations are unlikely to be affected. But I am likely to be affected by environmental crime because the impact of environmental crime is far-reaching and global is in impact. Environmental crimes are the only true international crimes. What other act of trafficking is there that when committed on one side of the planet can impact people elsewhere with no other human intervention? Environmental crimes are indiscriminate. The impact of, of environmental crimes is also time critical. If we don't act now, it will be too late and they're also irreversible. Environmental crime must no longer be searching around for the scraps under the enforcement, under the organized crime table. Environmental crime must become a law enforcement and criminal justice priority today. Thank you, Justin. Um, what a compelling case that you've just set out. Um, it struck me that actually you talked about it being far reaching and global and actually incredibly personal as well. And I think that for me uh, came out very, very clearly. Um, I would like now to ask Julian uh, to, to come in and, and speak to us. And Julian Newman um, is a former journalist, but joined the Environmental Investigation Agency in 1997, where he now works as a campaigns director. Um, throughout his time in EIA, Julian has carried out multiple field investigations in illegal logging, hazardous waste, the illicit trade in ivory and tiger parts, and that's just to name a few of them. Um, Julian has also supported NGOs in Asia and Africa, engaging in training and, and sharing his knowledge, which I'm very grateful that we have uh, Julian to do that with us here today as well. Julian, the floor is yours. Thanks, Louise. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for tuning in. Just to pick up on what Justin said, when we talk about environmental crime, we tend to sort of fixate a little bit on the financial value. These sort of numbers are out there with ranges and tens and hundreds of billions about the economic impact of environmental crimes, but we often forget the wide impact. Basically, environmental crime is driving a lot of the current biodiversity and climate crisis the world is facing, and environmental crimes affect us all, as Justin rightly said. So I'll spend a few minutes talking about some of the impacts I've come across in my work. Um, I've seen firsthand some of these problems that we're going to talk about today. We start with illegal wildlife trade. There's been a surge in the illegal wildlife trade over the last decade, putting the future of many species at risk. One species that's been particularly hard hit has been the, the elephant, poached widely for its ivory. And the scale of this crime is, is immense. When you think about a country like Tanzania, in 2009, Tanzania had 110,000 elephants, very famous elephant population in Tanzania. Many tourists went and saw the elephants. In five years, through poaching, that have been reduced to 43,000. That's over half gone in five years. That's industrial scale poaching by demand and largely uncurbed until about 2013, 2014, when we started getting a few court cases. Of course, the impact of this in Tanzania are huge. Tourism industry threatened, undermines the rule of law, fosters corruption. Of course, ultimately, the recipients of the ivory are from halfway around the world in Asia places like Hong Kong and other territories like that, where the ivory is kept in for. Hong Kong has emerged as a major transit hub for illegal wildlife products. I think between 2013 and 2020, about 22 tons of ivory were seized in Hong Kong by the customs, and about 70 tons of pangolin scales. Pangolin is currently the most trafficked mammal in the world. Huge demand driving it towards extinction. 
few seizures took place in Hong Kong, and obviously they're only a little fragment of the total passing through Hong Kong. Yet despite this overwhelming evidence of a, of a serious role played by Hong Kong in the illegal wildlife trade, the government there refuses to treat wildlife crime under its serious and organised crime ordinance. All these seizures in Hong Kong hardly ever lead to prosecutions, so really it's a business expense. In fact, if you seize something like a container of ivory and you don't prosecute anyone, you're actually making the situation worse because the criminals will go out and, and post them more to cover their losses. So you see a sort of problem here. We, some seizures take place, but there's no follow-up and there's no dis deterrent effect is put in there at all. One more example on wildlife comes from the Gulf of, Mexico, Gulf of California, where the vaquita is found. Vaquita is the most threatened cetacean in the world. Very, very few left. The only thing that's driving the vaquita towards extinction is crime. It's entangled in illegal fishing nets, which Mexico cannot seem to enforce its own laws. Therefore, the vaquita is on a fast track towards extinction purely because of criminality. And yet, we can't seem to stop that legal fishing, although there's no will to do so. Moving from biodiversity to climate, obviously we all know about the current climate crisis. And a major cause of the climate crisis we face is deforestation. You know, forests are a great natural ally of ours in the fight against climate change, both absorb and sequester carbon from the atmosphere. But when they're chopped down, they can't do it anymore. And also they emit carbon when they're chopped down major contribution to climate change. And although a lot of deforestation is, is legal under government rules, a lot of it is illegal. For example, from 2010, 2020, I think around about 20 million hectares of forest land were illegally cleared, either through logging or for clearance of things like palm oil or soya. And illegal logging is also rampant in many countries. In Indonesia at its peak about five, six years ago, 80% of all logging in Indonesia was illegal. It was a huge problem. Timber was streaming out of Indonesia to other consumer markets. Yet, despite the impacts of deforestation on our climate, often not treated seriously at all. For example, in Indonesia, there is a law against using fire to clear land for agriculture or forestry. Every year, there's a huge outbreak of fires, forest fires set by companies, often clearing land for palm oil. Satellites show us clearly where those fires began. They could be used for evidence in court cases to bring people to trial. It hardly ever happens in Indonesia, and it's business as usual to basically set fire to land and then grow crops, thereby impacting the climate adversely. Another form of climate crime is the illegal trade in climate-damaging chemicals. One of these chemicals was hydrofluorocarbons, HFCs, widely used in air conditioning and refrigeration. A few years ago, the European Union took a global lead to start controlling the use of these chemicals through the F-gas regulation. So it sets a quota by which to gradually phase out the use of these chemicals. Yet recent research has shown that illegal trade in HFCs accounts for about a third of the level of the quota. That's equivalent to about 34 million tons of CO2 emissions equivalent. Um, so the intent of the law has been undermined by criminal organizations, including organized crime. And slowly, there are more seizures taking place in Europe. But what often happens is when the seizure takes place, the illegal chemicals are simply returned to the sender, sent out the jurisdiction and sent back to where they came from. And that sender will probably try again to send them across the border. That's just a, an insight to how some of these crimes take place and the impact of them. And I think the challenge we face is trying to make environmental crime a priority. 
I just trusted said, there's progress at the global level, lots of fine words and resolutions taking place here in General Assembly. But, uh, yet, it's not percolating down to the national level in many countries where these crimes are simply not seen as a priority. Um, often these crimes are seen remote. If you're in a place like Europe, you might think that illegal logging or illegal posting of elephants is a long way away and doesn't affect you. But really, these crimes affect us all. And if we cannot tackle these crimes, we won't solve the biodiversity and climate crisis that the whole planet is facing right now. Thank you. Thank you very much, um, Julian. Um, I I have a couple of questions off of the back of that already, but uh, equally I want to to be able to, or I want to enable others to ask their questions uh, first. I haven't seen anything come in the chat box yet, and we have um, a, a significant number of participants in, so I'm scrolling through to check if we have any raised hands, and I can't see any immediately. So what I would say, or what I would ask, if it's okay, to both Julian um, and Justin, if you'd like to respond, and you touched a bit on it just then, Julian, is the extent to which this is a global problem. Um, Justin made the case very clearly that it is, but it feels, and you, but you mentioned the word remote, and that's what I picked up on. Um, how much of this is seen as somebody else's problem? Is this an issue that is um, sort of deferred or deflected across to the global south, and therefore are European countries, particularly and or others, less interested in dealing with it because it seems very far away? You know, how much is this genuinely a global problem, and how can we encourage people to see it as, as a global problem? Yeah, I think the impacts are truly global, as we already found out, you know, from the climate, we're all affected by climate change, the current pandemic, this is a zoonotic disease that could be linked to you know, abuse of nature. So the impacts are clearly global, but also as well, some of the supply chains are, are very global. And until about a decade ago, when we started first working on illegal logging, there was no law in consumer countries to bar the import of illegally logged timber. So if you could cut some trees down in Indonesia, put them on a ship and send them across to Europe, there was no law for any authorities in Europe to slot them into the European Union. So we spent a lot of time persuading the governments of Europe and the US to put in place measures, in demand-side measures, because ultimately a lot of these crimes are driven by demand. And so we now have rules in the EU and the US that make it an offence to import illegally logged timber. So that's a, a positive sign of when you know, the consumers, consumer countries can play their part. Likewise, in, in the wildlife trade, some of the wildlife trade um, supply chains go around the world. You know, they go through transit countries, onto destination countries, then on further. But there are always li weak links in the chain, and these wildlife smugglers they clearly know how to do their work, and they choose transit countries uh, where very very light regulation, where they can simply change the shipping documents and move it onto the final market. And often these transit countries don't step up and, and play the role they're supposed to play. They just let it go through, or they always see the problem the destination country to deal with. So I think we can clearly see there are global links to these crimes, um, uh, yet the response is not adequate to address them. Thank you, Julian. Justin, would you like to respond to that question? Um, I, I think we do face uh, the, the, the greatest challenge of, of this issue is to convince um, mainly world leaders that this is something that needs to be treated far more seriously, because just saying it is, is clearly not good enough. Um, and I think that's where prioritization comes in. When I speak about prioritization, I just don't, I don't just mean task forces within the police or, or, or um, allocating resources. I also mean prioritization at the communication of this problem. I think it's well known that environmental crimes 
lead to and contribute to the climate crisis and that the climate crisis is a current and also um, impending threat to all of us. But I'm not convinced that, that our current level of engagement with the problem is having the right impacts and convincing decision makers, policy makers, world leaders that it is the threat that most of us know that it is. I mean, it's it's incredible that, frankly, it's down to school children, wonderful school children, to be leading the the response to to climate crisis in the country. Uh, sorry, in the in the planet rather than world leaders. So prioritization, of course, is an extremely broad term. But I really mean that if we're going to address this properly and if we're going to address all the threats and therefore determine the responses, that's not going to happen unless we put it at the you know, the top of the list, not not amongst a load of other crime areas, which are equally important and that we do have the resources to tackle. And I mean, even the poorest countries, because poor countries are extremely good at tackling some areas of organised crime, but selectively choose not to tackle others. Um, so it's not always down to resources. The prioritisation is, is, is broad and it means identifying the problem, understanding it, communicating and then actually responding to it. Thank you, Justin. Um, a couple of very quick questions off the back of that that um, I would like to just pose to you. One was actually quite a follow on to that from somebody called Katya. So a question for you, Justin, what do you see as the two or three most effective ways to get environmental crime higher up that priority list that you were just talking about? I, I think uh, I think it's the right level of engagement to, to start with. I, I'd say it, it must be something that's led by the appropriate departments and ministries. I think that's probably a key step. At the moment, most environmental crimes are are um, tackled by environment agencies or agriculture departments, sometimes veterinary departments. Um, as Julian mentioned, in a country like Hong Kong, and I have no intention to pick on Hong Kong, but it's a good example. Hong Kong has, of course, incredible resources, but will not put environmental crimes under its serious um, or organized and serious crime ordinance. Um, and that's the case with many other countries. Um, in, in the country I'm from, in the UK, the response to these crimes is led by the Department on, on Environment rather than the Home Office, which is responsible for, for other serious crimes. So I think we, we need to shift the issue under the appropriate um, department, um, the appropriate agency, and engage the appropriate decision makers from law enforcement and criminal justice backgrounds, including both practitioner and also ministerial and policy makers. Um, and I think that would have a significant impact on what happens after that. Um, thank you, Justin. I have a question for you, Julian, actually, as well. Um, and I think you touched on it a little bit uh, when you were speaking. So Casey Kinnard of the Terrorism, Transnational Crime and Corruption Center from the George Mason University in the US. Um, um, Casey's asking, both you and Justin have talked about addressing criminality, but we haven't really talked about corruption. Um, but you did mention in your um, opening uh, presentation, Julian, um, a little bit about changing bills of lading and, and you know, so hinting at it, I think. Um, is corruption included in your in interpretation of crime? Um, and is that part of the issue as to why environmental crime isn't prioritised? Yeah, I think corruption is a key enabler of environmental crime across the board, really, from my experience. There are certain ports that are used to traffic out elephant tusks because they're known to be vulnerable and people are paid off. And I think um, we see that also in government departments where rangers are paid to turn the other, the other, the other way. So it's, it's, it's clear that corruption plays a key part in environmental crime. The 
problem is that it's because it's not seen as so serious. I think if you were perhaps a law enforcement official and someone was trying to bribe you to let a big shipment of heroin go through or some AK-47s, you're probably more unlikely to do that. But when it's something like pangolin scales or wood, yeah, you probably think that's that's a small small problem. I'll take some backhander for that and let it let it go through. Thank you. Um, I have a number of other questions here in the chat box, but what I'm going to propose to do um, is that we move on to hear the other speakers and then we uh, we return to these questions. So um, don't worry, I haven't forgotten about you and Katya. Thank you very much for sending in your additional information. That's super sweet of you. So um, I would like to move on to uh, to Dr. Tanya Wyatt. Um, Tanya, hi, nice to have you. Um, Tanya is a professor of criminology at Northumbria University in Newcastle here in the UK. Um, Tanya is a green criminologist specialising in wildlife trafficking and the intersections of organised crime, corporate crime and corruption. So nice segue, I think, there. Previously, Tanya was herself a police officer in the United States for nearly five years. And Tanya is now going to share her insights gained throughout this journey with us today. Thanks, Tanya. Yes, thank you. And thank you, Justin, for organising the panel about an ongoing problem that environmental crime is not a priority for law enforcement. We've heard why it should be, and I'd like to share some thoughts on why I think it still isn't. I suggest that part of why environmental crime isn't a priority stems from law enforcement culture. Uh, as Louise mentioned, I'm a former police officer turned academic, and I have some experience of this on several levels. I'm going to highlight three interrelated elements around police training, uh, then what Justin mentioned around the relationship to regulation, and then finally around police discretion. Now, many of my examples I'm going to give come from the UK, and most of you might know that the UK really prides itself on being a wildlife-loving nation and a country that protects its environment. There are certainly some areas of best practice here, but when one looks more deeply, there's actually significant gaps in this narrative. And I'm sure there are examples from other countries where there's a better consideration of the environment. Uh, and I know there are examples of, of where it's where it's worse as well but much of what i'm going to say i think may be generalizable uh, so i'm going to start with police training so in england a few years ago police training and education was standardized now all new police officers must have completed a university degree in police studies or a university accredited degree apprenticeship in collaboration with a police constabulary that they're going to work for all of the curriculum for this is set by the Central College of Policing. Now, there is nothing in this curriculum about environmental crime or wildlife crime. The core teaching is about ethics, leadership, evidence-based policing, quality and diversity, health and safety, and professional standards, among other things. The specific training about preventing and reducing crime only mentions counterterrorism and neighborhood policing. Now, I'm not suggesting any of this should be replaced. Obviously, they, officers need to know this whole gambit of things. But can room not be made to actually educate officers about environmental offenses? By instilling in officers from their first moments that crime is assault, it's theft, it's terrorism, this socializes officers into a very narrow perspective of what's a priority. This narrow perspective stays with them for most, well, most of them, not all of them, their entire careers, and has far-reaching consequences in terms of environmental crime not being a priority. The second thing I was talking about is the relationship to regulation. 
Uh, in the UK, environmental offenses, as Justin mentioned, are not usually seated within police constables. Domestic wildlife crimes are a bit different, and I'll return to these in a moment. Pollution sits with the Environment Agency. Uh, so fly tipping, a huge problem in this country, actually sits with local authorities. Those officers do not have the same powers as the police. Environmental regulators can investigate these offenses and give civil sanctions, but they cannot make arrests and detain people, and any criminal matters have to be coordinated with the police constabulary. The same for border force. They have to coordinate with the National Crime Agency when they find illegal wildlife. The Environment Agency of England does have a prosecution section, and they are very open that criminal charges and sanctions are a last resort. The relationship between regulators and police, I think, contributes to the lack of seriousness of environmental crimes. Environmental regulators aren't real police. They don't have the same powers and responsibilities. The normative message sent by civil sanctions being used predominantly also sends this message that environmental destruction is not criminal, that it's not as serious as other kinds of crimes. And finally, the third thing I wanted to talk about is police discretion. So you have constables socialized into a culture where environmental and wildlife crime are not talked about and are not given the same treatment by the system. What does that lead to? In the UK, chief constables get to decide whether or not to have wildlife officers and how much of their budget goes towards that particular crime. And in the culture created, there are very few wildlife crime officers in the various constabularies in the UK. Some constabularies have none. Those who do have them, the wildlife officers, often do this on top of all of their other duties. Uh, and in my conversations with these really dedicated, passionate officers, they express their frustration that their fellow officers have no consideration for crimes against animals and try to refer these fluffy cases to other non-governmental organizations, which in England have minimal powers to investigate, something like the RSPCA. One wildlife crime officer told me this was even when a suspect at a case at a domestic violence dispute they responded to had microwaved a cat. The investigating officer thought this was not an issue for the police and needed to be referred to the RSPCA. Local authorities too can decide how many environmental officers to have and what their budget is. The local authority near me a few years ago, the environmental officers were greatly reduced. This is in a local authority that experiences three thousand reported cases of fly tipping a year, which cost the councils tens of millions of pounds to clean up. This sends a message again that environmental crime isn't important when the government puts little effort into preventing it, controlling it, or holding people responsible for it. The same is evident at the regional level where we have regional organized crime units, which are for focused on organized crime groups. They do not seem to have a focus on environmental crime. The focus appears to be on cybercrime and human trafficking. This may be changing a bit in the context of the rural crime network that exists in the UK, which work with these units and have shown an interest in waste dumping in particular and fly tipping, as I mentioned, which is a huge problem. Further evidence of the lack of seriousness that environmental and wildlife crimes is that they're not recordable in many places. So if you look at the crime survey of England and Wales or many countries' crime statistics, you will not see environmental offenses being recorded. I recently submitted a freedom of information request to the Crown Prosecution Service about illegal wildlife that had been confiscated at Heathrow Airport. They could say to me that there was 86 cases over 10 years, but there might be more, but the way that they record them, they don't really know for sure. 
in a working culture that rewards officially or not officers and prosecutors adding to certain statistics, it is not in those officers' career interests to spend any time doing anything other than drug busts and that, and that kind of thing. So the non-recordable offenses or poorly recorded offenses get ignored. And that's another reason why environmental crime is not a priority. So I propose in our efforts to get it taken seriously in its organized and other various forms, we should not overlook police culture. And part of the solution is to start from the ground up and change the way that law enforcement itself views, counts, and approaches these crimes. We need all of law enforcement to think environmental crime is serious, not just a few dedicated officers. Thank you. Thank you, Tanya. Um, and I, I don't want to, to be at all derogatory, but it seems like in, in some respects, even a simple structural change could make such a big difference. Um, and I think I was very, very taken uh, by that. So thank you. Um, but lots, lots to digest in there. Thank you. Um, Tao, um, I would like to move on to you next, um, please. Tao Qingqiang joining us from Bangkok uh, today, actually, where um, Tao works for the UNODC as a program officer for combating wildlife and forest crime. Tao is responsible for building and strengthening investigative capacity across Southeast Asia to counter transnational organized crime. And prior to joining UNODC, Tao was a police officer with the China Ministry of Public Security. Tao, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you, Riz, and um, good day to you all. Before going into the argument of prioritizing serious and organized wildlife crime, I think I would like to share some uh, terminology that may be overlooked. In most cases we worked on, illegal wildlife trade can be seen as a form of organized crime and the involvement of organized criminal groups in transnational organized wildlife trafficking is evident. But you may ask, what does organized mean? And how do we define serious? The United Nations Convention Against uh, Transnational Organized Crime actually defines an organized criminal group as a structure group of three or more persons existing for a period of time and acting with the aim of committing more or more serious crimes in order to obtain a financial or other material benefit. And the convention goes on to explain that the, the serious crime is a crime punishable by four years or more in prison. So in other words, organized crime is not just mafia type groups that we saw on the movie. Any pattern of profit motivated, serious criminal activity is considered organized crime. And nearly all transnational wildlife trafficking fulfills this criteria, provided the penalties in the relevant countries are in excess of four years or more in prison. Now we understand the seriousness and organized nature of the wildlife crime, then, then we still, um, why it has not yet as sufficiently got the attention and prioritization from either the governments or the general public, uh, as, as Justine and, and um, uh, other speakers has, has mentioned. Despite all the advocacy and all the efforts from, from NGOs or the INGOs, as a former police officer and, and currently implementing a UN program on combating wildlife crime in Asia, actually, I think my answer is pretty straightforward. And also you may heard it already, that is because we all stopped at the seizures. It's natural for law enforcement agencies or offices to them making a seizure is a, is a major and sufficient success. 
And for the general public, a seizure photo of massive ivory, running horns, paggling skills are attractive and interesting, right? For governments involved, big seizures means big credits. But we need to go beyond seizures to go after organized criminal groups to identify the networks behind the scenes and to locate their financial flows and to go for seizure of their assets. Only when the financing interrupted, I think will the criminal activity suspended. In this way, we may actually reduce serious organized wildlife crime. Now, I understand you would agree because it's not something new as we, the concept is, is, is of going beyond seizures has been out there um, for many years, but why there's still not much changed? Uh, my argument is, is that because the law enforcement efforts is largely, once again, determined by the priorities given by the government. This government prioritization determined their the resource allocation, including possible funding, staff deployment, technology availability. Subsequently, the resource at hand will determine how far law enforcement can go beyond just seizures. Then probably you would say again, say, yeah, then why government is not giving the priorities? Well, um, a lot of uh, speakers before me has already identified and also from my understanding that the general um, public sense is that wildlife crime has less impact on the stability of the society than the other human-related crimes, such as the homicide, rape, robbery, corruption, human trafficking. It isn't unrealistic to ask the police or prosecutors or the courts to prioritize, say, for example, pangolins over the rape, robbery, and corruption that has actually plagued the daily lives. The other reasons is the um, limitation of the criminal justice cap capacity of different countries, I would say, which in turn makes it unable to give the public enough successful stories on the convictions of wildlife crime. To conclude from uh, my line of work to combat wildlife crime, I would advocate for a stronger criminal justice response from the crime scene all the way to the court. And as, a, as one of my, uh, another colleague in the UNDC mentioned, to reduce wildlife crime, member states shall investigate properly, charge it correctly, try it swiftly and sentenced in a predictable and proportionate way. Over. Um, thank you, Tao. Thank you very much. Um, again, stopping at seizures, don't do it. Um, and there's lots of questions popping up uh, that follow on from this, and I'm uh, very excited to be able to... Um, to, to offer them over to you. But first I would like to introduce Angus and Angus would love to hear from you. Dr. Angus Nurse is an associate professor um, at Middlesex University School of Law where he teaches and researches crim criminology, law and environmental justice. Um, previously, Angus worked in investigations and compliance with an environmental NGO and has published a number of books, including one co-authored with Tanya, on wildlife criminology, policing, wildlife, and animal harm. Angus, please would you um, let us know your thoughts on this topic? Okay, thanks very much. Um, well, I'm gonna pick up on some of the things raised by the previous speakers, and also that I have noticed in the chat about um, sanctioning of wildlife. So I'm talking, sorry, sanctioning of, of offences. So I'm talking about prosecuting uh, wildlife and environmental offences. 
predominantly looking at wildlife offences. Uh, and I've looked mostly, my examples come from the UK and the US, but with some from elsewhere. And one of the things that uh, green criminologists have identified is that much wildlife crime is dealt with by lower courts, where poor prosecutorial and judicial knowledge can sometimes hamper effective uh, species justice. And as I think a few people are alluding to in the chat, uh, inadequate sentencing practices uh, tend to fail to provide the required deterrence. In addition, the use of some action mechanisms such as banning orders or disqualification from people being involved in or keeping animals is inconsistent and when they are applied, they're poorly monitored. The perception that comes across when we look at prosecution activity is that in many countries, sanctions for wildlife and environmental crimes are insufficient to act as a deterrent and don't reflect the seriousness of the offences. Uh, but before we even get to that stage, one of the points that I think uh, Julian mentioned is that not all cases are prosecuted. And one of the considerations in relation to environmental and wildlife crimes is the notion of the public interest, the notion of what is considered by prosecutors that they should be engaged in and that they will proceed through to, to prosecution. Here we have a problem where in the broad area of environment, uh, perhaps two prosecutorial regimes are being used. As Justin mentioned, many environmental offences are dealt with uh, via a regulatory approach, using environmental regulators rather than criminal prosecutors. And this is often based on managing um, an environmental problem rather than perhaps uh, preventing it from taking place, often with prosecution uh, being considered to be the last resort, particularly when we're talking about uh, corporations. By contrast, in some wildlife crime areas, uh, prosecution of wildlife crime is through the criminal law, but this reflects uh, a notion on individual offenders and individual offending behaviour, which often doesn't take into account the organised um, aspects of offending behaviour. So part of the problem that we have is that uh, prosecuting approaches are based on punishment of the individual or retribution towards the individual rather than prevention and repairing the harm. Although the theory behind this is if you prosecute rigorously enough, you will deter people. Uh, some criminologists may dispute that in terms of whether or not deterrent theory actually works, but I'm sure I'll be picking that up in the questions. However, as previous speakers have noticed, uh, noted, there are issues surrounding not just the issue of when we prosecute, how we prosecute, and whether it's in the public interest to prosecute, but what happens when we do. It's consistently shown in research that low conviction rates are an issue in wildlife crime cases, there are inconsistency in sanctions, and there is a failure to utilise uh, mechanisms that we use in other areas of crime and criminality, such as asset recovery mechanisms. And because prosecution of wildlife offences falls outside normative criminal justice activity, the mainstream criminal justice agencies, and I'm including the courts here that are sometimes involved in these, will only encounter wildlife and environmental crimes infrequently, and sometimes will lack the expertise in dealing with such crimes when faced with them. So one of the things that scholars have commented on and various researchers have commented on in looking at this is that problems exist in the prosecutorial and judicial knowledge base and also in understanding the complexity and perceived adequacy of wildlife and environmental legislation as a tool for dealing with criminal behaviour. Some of the issues that are raised when looking at these issues 
are where cases are heard, whether they're heard in magistrates' courts or superior courts, which leads into the point that previous speakers have made concerning the importance attached to these offences. Often they are heard in lower courts, whether they are heard in general or specialist courts. And there are arguments for specialist environmental courts that consider when they are looking at uh, the aggravated nature of offences, the specialised nature of these offences and what needs to be done to address the harm rather than just perpetually punish individuals. There are issues to consider around the types of penalty that are applied, whether fines are used, whether prison is used or whether action orders are used. And crucially, there are issues to consider around any remedies that are invoked to address the harm that is caused, perhaps employing restorative principles to change behaviour and deal with the loss of wildlife and harm to the environment. So we have a number of practical difficulties in our prosecution um, systems. There are areas where there are difficulties in getting statutory agencies to investigate crimes, as previous speakers have said. There are difficulties in investigating cases due to the lack of specialist wildlife and environmental uh, legislative knowledge sometimes. And when prosecutions do take place or when cases are being considered for prosecution, there are issues often around loopholes in legislation, which mean that some illegal activities are in fact similar to legal ones. And practical difficulties can be um, experienced in addressing any potential defences that people might rely on. There are difficulties in bringing cases to court due to a lack of expertise on the part of prosecutors and a low priority afforded to prosecuting cases in some areas. And here there is an issue around uh, prosecutorial discretion where lower offences or civil penalties might be applied instead of criminal ones or sometimes vice versa. And one of the important things to consider is whether or not the prosecutorial approach deals with um, the specific nature of the offending that has taken place. And here, uh, not perhaps considering the organized crime elements of an offense, but dealing on environmental um, issues may be problematic. There are some areas where there are, of course, specialist wildlife prosecutors and specialist environmental prosecutors who are building up um, a body of knowledge in these areas. And of course, it would be remiss of me to not mention as part of my closing um, point here that there are specialist environmental courts in some areas equipped with expertise and knowledge and building up a body of case law to deal with these as specialist offences. But what I want to kind of end on uh, is to think about in gaining a greater priority for these cases, one of our issues around uh, the notion of what is the public interest in taking environmental and wildlife cases needs to perhaps be considered upon the harm that is caused by these offences, rather than, as I think Justin alluded to in his opening speech, um, the issue of the economic value solely. So it's the harm to the wildlife and the harm to the environment that we need to take into account. And on that basis, I would argue that our notion of the public interest should be one that needs to be strengthened um, less along an anthropocentric uh, perspective and more in terms of what is important for the environment and non-human animals. Thank you. Thank you, um, Angus. Um, at the risk of therefore doing a complete U-turn off the back of that, there was a question here around illicit finance. Um, 
And you did mention asset recovery uh, as well. And so the question is from from David Renshaw, who's with the UK Foreign Office, FCDO, um, from the illicit finance team. He said, could you share any thoughts that, and this is addressed, I think, to all the panel, but I might look to Justin first. Could you share any thoughts you have on environmental crime and its relation to illicit finance, in particular, whether you view illicit finance as a driver of environmental crime and or just a necessary facilitator? Um, thanks for the question. Um, I, I, I don't, as far as I'm aware, and I, I don't see illicit finance as a driver of, of environmental crime. Um, it, of course, is the motive of most environmental crimes, i.e. To, to make money. And the funds are uh, both used directly, but also laundered into, into other um, illicit activities. Um, I, I don't know if this speaks to the, the question, but I also saw um, another, another question along these lines in relation to um, how we can best um, deal with these matters amongst, um, for example, communities that poach wildlife, uh, poach animals for, for, for bushmeat or subsistence. Um, and and this, this relates to the finance. And I think that there's a key element here, and it also speaks to something Angus said about penalties. I do think we need to focus very much when it comes to penalties on um, the proceeds of crime and seizure of assets um, and using that legislation. Of course, that's not going to happen unless these crimes fall into an appropriate category of crime. We can't use that kind of legislation. So I, I think it's widely acknowledged that just locking up criminals is not necessarily appropriate um, or effective. Fines are also, you know, in, in these crimes, I mean, they're, they're making, you know, extraordinary sums of money. So frankly, you can't fine people enough. But what you can do is work out, as we do with other serious crimes, how much money these offenders have made, what their assets are, and then you take them away. And that's much more commensurate to the level of criminality as well, because someone who's, who's made very little profit out of these will be penalised or affected by that, that legislation very slightly. Someone who's making an absolute fortune out of it and has a 12-bedroom house and several nice cars is going to get those taken away from them. So that's the kind of um, legislation and, and um, effect that we could have if these crimes were treated as a greater priority. Um, thank you. There's another question here from Annette Hubschler from the University of Cape Town to all of the speakers, and I'm happy to take volunteers as to who might want to, um, to try and answer this first. What is your position on restorative and environmental justice models and processes? So um, Annette is saying that a lot of research in source countries points to structural and historical injustices. So criminal justice responses will not necessarily deal with the underlying motivations for offending. Angus, did you want to have a go or...? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll have a go at that. Uh, yes, I agree entirely. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm quite in favour. I suppose what I'm getting at is in favour of using the appropriate sanctioning and remedying mm -hmm. mechanism to both the situation and to the nature of offending. Uh, and I agree entirely with Annette's point that in some areas, criminal justice responses don't don't achieve anything. And I think as Justin was just alluding to you know, you can potentially get into a situation where all you are doing is constantly catching people and all you are doing is constantly putting people in prison, for example, and it just doesn't deal with any underlying issues. Um, and in the area where you are looking at things like, um, you know, the death of wildlife, for example, or, or uh, somebody's mentioned fisheries in, in the chat, 
uh, destruction of uh, marine marine ecosystems, for example, punishing people uh, through a prison sentence, for example. And I'm not necessarily suggesting we do away with prison. I should probably say that, but punishing somebody through a prison sentence doesn't address that underlying harm and doesn't address the motivation. So a restorative penalty that effectively requires people to pay for the pollution that they have uh, committed and also to engage with the communities that they have harmed, uh, I am in favour of. They are not without their problems, uh, but the kind of models that are based around looking at the nature of the harm, then addressing that and perhaps bringing community and offender, for want of a better expression, together at times um, through a sort of mediated settlements and and as I say, this the, the kind of polluter pays principle uh, is appropriate in some circumstances. Uh, and I, I'm fully in favour of those. Um, it might be going back um, a couple of steps, but there's a couple of questions here, as you mentioned, Angus, on uh, definitions and things. And there's one from Renata Chow from the WWF. And, and Julian, maybe you want to take a, a pop at this one and then I'll add one on the end as well. Um, environmental crimes such as spills of hazardous waste that affects the quality of water, air, and or soil, are they considered wildlife crimes as well? And as Angus mentioned, um, there's one from Daniel Keisher-Lurice, and I'm really sorry if I messed up the pronunciation of that. Um, would you consider fisheries crime a subset of environmental crime? And if so, do you think that maybe within environmental crime, fisheries crime faces a similar problem of being regarded as a lower priority? That's from Sea Shepherd Legal, Daniel Kashel-Reese. I didn't mess it up again, sorry. I'll, I'll take that one very quickly as well, and I'll say yes okay. and yes. Okay. Uh, yes, I, I would consider fisheries within the definition of uh, environmental crime. And yes, uh, low priority, partly because in some areas, um, the, the, the exploitation of... of of fish is perfectly is acceptable within legal systems so again it's that point i i perhaps rushed to a little bit quickly but about the challenges of distinguishing the legal and the illegal uh, and in uk legislation it has in the past been an area where there have been uh, potential for loopholes because you can um kill you you could kill other wildlife in order to protect fisheries but the manner in which the legislation was framed was a little bit problematic as, as to what was necessary action to protect. So, yeah. Julian, would you like as well to, to add on to that? Well, definitely things like spills and dumping for, uh, can, be, can be called environmental crime under the, under the banner of pollution crime, mostly. Pollution crime is obviously another one that affects our, our planet greatly. We can work a few years ago at EIA on the illegal trade in electronic waste going out to West Africa, and it was being disposed of in appalling conditions, creating lots of health problems for the local people and environmental problems. So definitely environmental crime as far as I'm concerned. Thank you. Um, I have a question here as well from Adam Forbes um, from the FCDO as well. And Tao, I might ask you to, to have a go at this one, please. Um, Adam's saying, can we argue that environmental crime should be prioritised because it's the soft underbelly of serious and organised crime actors, as in um, they are used to being they are used to being investigated for other types of criminal behaviour, but not for this type of activity? Um, I agree that um, the environmental crime, uh, the wildlife crime, is the the underbelly this, the, of, of um, um, terrorist transnational organized crime, and they are often the case where they are not um, looking to directly the the nature of the crime, but rather start sometimes with other um, allegations or other type of um, offenses that might 
uh, might link or I, um, incidentally link to to the wildlife crime. But the 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 fact that um, the wildlife crime is is in many countries. Um, regarded as not not as a, a serious organized crime is is because the um the common i mean the the public uh, are not taking this type of of crime as as the, the, the seriousness is, is as the the same level as other human related crimes and that drove drive the the law enforcement uh, or the the entire um the agency's response into where resourced uh, area where where ignorance was placed to this type of crime i don't know if i um had answered the Thank question you. um um adam if if we haven't then please let us know uh, in yeah. in the chat box um we have a couple of questions here as well um that I think potentially are linked. So from Luke Dockendorf from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Luxembourg, um, addressed to Angus, but possibly other panelists might want to respond as well. Given that many of these crimes are transnational, is there a need for an international criminal tribunal on environmental and ecological crimes or expanding the jurisdiction perhaps of existing international criminal tribunals as well? Angus, would you like to respond? It was addressed directly to you, but then I'll also ask any other panelists if they would like to comment. Uh, yeah, this is an interesting one. This is something where I suppose part of what the question raises is it raises the extent to which uh, environmental and wildlife crimes are adequately dealt with through existing international law mechanisms and particularly international criminal law mechanisms. Uh, and the short answer is not very well would be my suggestion, but I'm open to other panel members disagreeing with me. Um, I So the, the answer I would suggest is probably a two pronged answer. One is that uh, there have been attempts to get uh, environmental uh, harm and particularly ecocide considered within international law mechanisms and which have not been successful for a variety of reasons. Um, and there has also been a movement for there to be essentially an international environmental court, which has also not been successful for a variety of reasons. Uh, I think there is an argument both for having an international criminal tribunal on environmental and ecological crimes uh, although I think that politically, I don't see that happening anytime soon. Uh, but also examining the jurisdiction of international, in, uh, existing international criminal tribunals to see how they might uh, better deal with um, environmental and wildlife crimes. And, and I'm making a distinction between the two because within some of the existing international mechanisms, it is possible to address some international environmental crimes, uh, sorry, some international wildlife crimes have been considered, or some international wildlife issues, I'm being careful about how I use the word crimes here, have been uh, considered by, for example, uh, the International Court of Justice in relation to uh, whaling issues, for example, have been considered by that court. Um, but other issues like wildlife trafficking are not necessarily going to be easy to deal with through those courts, 
nor are uh, pollution offences unless it is at the level perhaps of one state affecting another where it might bring it within the remit of the International Court of Justice. Within international criminal law, it's more problematic if you look at something like the statute, uh, the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. And this is why there was an argument to try and bring ecocide within uh, that legislation. Uh, so I think it, I, th I, I personally think it's both. I think it's an argument for an international criminal tribunal on environmental issues with the caveat that I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. And also looking at uh, either expanding the jurisdiction of other criminal tribunals or looking at how environmental issues can be brought within their existing uh, jurisdiction. Would any of the other panellists like to respond? But I do have a couple of... Yeah, Justin, please. Well, uh, just not, not to um, go over the, the good points that Angus just made, but I think it's important to recognise that um, all of the crimes we're talking about... Um, take place nationally and, and that there, there should be national legislation and a national response to these issues. Of course, cooperation is extremely important when it comes to transnational crime, particularly the sharing of evidence, um, which you know can make or break a case. But most of these crimes can be dealt with at national level. Um, they, they don't need to be to be complex. And that's another area I just want to touch on is, is that, um, you know, we talked about this being the soft underbelly. I mean, the thing is, is that most most environmental criminals has not been subjected to the kind of investigation techniques that are used in other forms of crime. So there's an extraordinary opportunity here. Should governments, should, should agencies actually want to get a grip of the problem, they could do so probably quite easily. Um, I, I see in the room a, a, a couple of colleagues and friends, John Seller, the former CITES uh, Chief of Enforcement, and uh, Steve Carmody from the Wildlife Justice Commission. John spent a lot of his time, um, his career in CITES, I remember, saying this isn't rocket science. Um, tackling these crimes is not difficult. It's not um, extraordinary. It doesn't need vast levels of, in, of enforcement or investigation beyond those used for other forms of organised crime. So we shouldn't see them as as difficult. And then Steve uh, has also mentioned that these crimes, you know, we talk about these being sophisticated crimes. They're not really, a lot of the smuggling offences is just someone hiding something under something else. Um, so <clears throat> if we want to tackle these crimes, um, we, we can do so. And, and that would have a, 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 an extraordinary effect if, uh, if the response was even just doubled. Um, I'm very conscious that we have uh, five minutes left and a, a still a couple of questions uh, left unanswered. One from actually the beginning of the session, which I think is only fair to ask. And it will kind of um, it will flip a little bit of the perspective of this discussion, which, again, I think will be uh, interesting to explore. So, Leas, from the Global Initiative, actually, I, I'm, I promise I'm not being biased. We are allowed to ask questions, too. Um, would any of the panelists like to respond about the best practices for ensuring that measures taken to stem the illegal wildlife trade at source do not negatively impact the local actors for whom bushmeat poaching, logging provides their provides their livelihood and their sustainability and their income and family sustenance? Which panelists would like to have a go at that? Julian? Uh, obviously, the Laws can be blunt if they're misused, and so we have to be careful about having too stringent laws because, as you say, people rely on forests for the firewood of local areas. If you start penalising them, it can be uh, negative consequences. For example, I've seen examples where posts have been targeted um, quite quite strongly, and human rights violations have occurred by focusing on, on the local people, um, and that 
create ill will and also to get to the, the nub of the matter, which is really the people in the middle of the syndicates who are, should be the target, not, not the low-level poachers. And there's a good example from Tanzania where uh, a task force was set up and they started working with the poachers to turn them to become informants. So the poachers were realising how little they were getting paid compared with how much the guys up the team were getting paid. And they started giving details about who was um, committing them, how it was being done. And through that, the task force worked its way up to the syndicate and started arresting the main players based in Dar es Salaam. And that was a, a really important uh, moment. But, you know, focus on the local people have to be careful about that. Um, I'm very sorry, but I do think that we are <laughs> running out of time and I'm really excited that we're running out of time on some level because it just shows what a great discussion that we've had and and I'm really sorry if we haven't managed to answer your questions and thank you very much to Tanya for being an absolute superstar um, and actually answering questions in the chat herself. So Tanya gets, I'm sorry, the best, uh, the, the medal for um, most interactive uh, panellists today. Um, thank you very much for um, the range of discussion, the range of questions that we've had. We've gone, I think, from local to global. We've talked about national priorities. We've talked about political prioritization, but we've also talked about how structural changes um, and simple things at the start of a process can really change people's mindsets. Um, and I, I think for, for what I've taken away from this as well is that despite we had quite a lot of discussion around prosecution angles and law enforcement responses, it's actually that a holistic response is what we is what we've picked up and what we've talked about at the same time. So each of our panelists have come with a slightly different perspective, which added together um, might actually uh, start to have some some impact. So, um, uh, and I think I'm not quite sure that we answered all of the questions. If we haven't, we will try to follow up after the session. Um, we would remain very very keen to do that, and I'm very grateful for the fact that we've started this discussion. And this is only the start, and definitely not the end. I think we are about to roll into um, a goodbye video. If you are staying on the B channel, then please stay online. If you are switching to another session, then please either log on to the A, C or D sessions. And thank you once again uh, for your time today and wishing you all the best for the next 22 and three quarter hours. My maths is shocking. I probably got that wrong. All the very best. Goodbye. You were listening to Prioritising Serious and Organised Environmental Crime. If you'd like to get more information on this topic and the speakers, head over to the conference website, oc24.globalinitiative.net. There you can also find videos of most of the talks, including a number of discussions that are not part of this podcast series. This was the 24-hour conference on Global Organised Crime podcast. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. Thanks for listening.